0: Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, Distinguished Professor at the University of California, Irvine, welcome to the With Benefit of Hindsight podcast. Thank you. Dr. Loftus, you and I have been in touch about this case for many, many years uh, on, on and off. It's been quite a ride. Uh, (laughs) Before we get into why it is that uh, we decided that it was a good time to do another interview together, why don't you give our listeners who might not be that familiar with the case and your involvement, kind of your history with this case uh, leading up to and including the time when you actually testified in this case?
1: Well, first of all, I was originally retained to work on the case involving Some of the administrators at Penn State, um, Schultz and Curley, and uh, those two individuals who were, you know, accused of not uh, revealing what knowledge they might have had about the case. And so there are a lot of issues uh, having to do with their memories. And um, so since I was retained on that part of the whole. Penn State mess, if we can call it that. Uh, I I didn't have too much to do with Jerry Sandusky's specific case, uh, but then when when things kind of resolved themselves um, for the administrators, and, and then I was free uh, without conflict to talk with some of Jerry's uh, lawyers. Uh, that's when I began to talk with those lawyers, and uh, you know I'm just it's been so many years now. I'm 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 trying to remember. Maybe you can help me, John, because we know how memory is. <laughs> uh, so I, it seems. I mean, I did not testify in the trial. I mean, it seems to me I might have testified in a hearing or had, had some sort of involvement, but I'm uh, in in the actual case, not the actual trial itself. But right. It's hard for me to remember exactly. Well,
0: that's kind of funny. So since, many years. since you're one of the world's foremost experts on memory, I can refresh your recollection by telling you that you did indeed testify in a Jerry Sandusky appeal hearing many years after his trial, and yes, okay. and, and yes, after the administrators had already uh, pled guilty. So your, your conflict, if you will, uh, had been resolved there. And um, there were there were you know, so so for people who don't know that much about your background, I've already referenced you as a memory expert. That was the area uh, that your expertise was called upon for testimony. And, and what and what is your perception of how the issue of memory plays in various aspects of this entire case?
1: Well, first of all, when it when it came to the administrators, there you know, there were serious questions about whether, You know, I I think the prosecution's theory was when they said they didn't remember things about earlier accusations against Jerry, that they were deliberately lying, but there were serious questions about what exactly they were told and how important it sounded at the time, and uh, whether whether it was a a casual, off-the-cuff kind of conversation that might not have been considered all that significant or remembered years and years later. So that's the whole issue about the administrator's memory of what they might have learned and when. Um, but when it, comes to the, when it comes to the accusers of Jerry Sandusky's supposed bad conduct, now, now we're talking about uh, what's going on with these accusers. How come these accusers had a wonderful relationship with Jerry Sandusky for years and years, had lots of warm and fuzzy, you know, and continuing contact with him in the year after the supposed abuse. Um, How come they wrote him, you know, glowing letters and said wonderful things about him in an interview, and then suddenly after there's a lot of publicity and a a scandal and the dangling of potential money, uh, now they're coming up with stories of, of scores, if not hundreds of instances of abuse, what happened. And in a number of cases, the what happened had to do with uh, psychotherapy and a lot of media saturation.
0: So let's talk about the therapy aspect of this. You have become very well known uh, for your debunking of the entire concept of repressed memory therapy. Can you just kind of give us the, the Reader's Digest version of your work in that area?
1: Sure, but w- let me start, John, by, by saying something that I think it's important to say, that uh, as a memory scientist, or memory scientist in general, we know that people cannot think about something for a long time and be reminded of it and then, and then remember it. They can even have unpleasant experiences, not think about them for some time, be reminded of them, and remember them. This is ordinary forgetting and remembering. But what's being claimed in, in many of these repressed memory cases that we've seen throughout the last several decades is something that's too extreme be explained by ordinary forgetting and remembering. And it's it's often called massive repression or sometimes it goes by some other names. I'm talking just to bring a different situation uh, into the mix of this discussion. You know, a woman who remembers that her father raped her between the ages of five and 16 and uh, claimed to banish this into the unconscious until she was 18 and went into therapy. This is kind of too extreme to be explained by ordinary forgetting and remembering. And for that, this idea of massive repression, there is no credible scientific support for this. Uh, and this is why Dr. Richard McNally, a, a prominent um, memory clinical researcher at Harvard, uh, calls this massive repression idea folklore.
0: And you have been, and others have been, very successful in in creating uh, the perception that this is a, a myth a myth the entire concept of uh, being able to to regurgitate uh, repressed memories via therapy and and in many courtrooms in this country uh, such testimony is is not even allowed correct
1: well that's that's happened in some cases in, in other places it's in other places it's still allowed I mean and it's so it's kind of the luck of where you happen to live and what kind of courtroom you happen to end up in, what kind of justice you end up getting. And as to, Jerry Sandusky learned for himself,
0: and and to be clear, you know the prosecution in this in the Jerry Sandusky case danced around very deftly the issue of repressed memories. And their relationship to therapy uh, uh, provoking these repressed memories, allegedly repressed memories of abuse. The Attorney General, when she announced the charges, actually uh, referenced the accusers having buried their memories, and, uh, which certainly sounds a lot like <laughs> a repressed memory, but they don't wanna use that phrase because it has uh, essentially become toxic thanks to the work of you and other people. They have other words for it, including, by the way, PTSD. That's the new way in which they describe it. They, they diagnose you with post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's the reason why you can't remember these horrible stories of abuse uh, from previous times in your life. And in, in this particular case involving uh, Jerry Sandusky, there is some evidence that there were accusers who underwent repressed memory therapy, specifically victim number seven, Dustin Struble, who actually did an interview with Mark Pendergrass, the person I know that you're very familiar with and, and uh, are much aligned with on this issue, in his book, The Most Hated Man in America, about the Sandusky case. Yeah, he reveals that Strubel engaged in, in that particular uh, kind of therapy and that he and, and Pendergrass believes that Strubel to this day believes that he was abused, but that he had simply repressed the memories that came out via therapy. How significant do you think that is to understanding the case against Jerry Sandusky? I, I, I,
1: there's, there's, there's more than one person who underwent repressed memory therapy in this case. Um, where they, you know, they aren't remembering something and they end up uh, getting kind of suggestive information and, and, you know, almost like a little bit of pressure to come up with more and more and more stories. And, and it, you know, it, it, it's hard to know now of, of, of all these individuals who have come forward, um, how many of them, for um, how, how many of them is this a, a, a recovery of what they think is a repressed memory that they believe is true? How many of them uh, yet are just in it for the vast amounts of money they ended up getting? Uh, it, it, it's really hard to say. But it, it is clear from documents that I reviewed, you know, around the time of that hearing testimony, that uh, there, was, yeah. there was repressed memory therapy going on in the lives of a number of these individuals.
0: And Dr. Loftus, I want to talk to you about what what is a lie and and what's a misunderstanding about a repressed memory, because that's a debate that Mark and I have had a lot. But I want to hold off on that for a second, because what facilitated us scheduling this interview is that you had a chance to listen to at least most, if if not all of the very, very extensive interviews that we did with A.J. Dillon. A.J. Dillon is our we call him our purposely fake accuser who did a sting operation on the primary lawyer in this case, Andrew Shubin. And his therapist, Dr. Cynthia McNabb, uh, for as I said, well over three years, uh, he says he had a, about a hundred sessions with with McNab, the therapist. He recorded most of them. He recorded almost all of his meetings with Andrew Shubin, and uh, there. So that was uh, that was the the source of of our very extensive interview with A.J. Dillon, which you had a chance to listen to, and you indicated to me that you found uh, A.J.'s story and his interviews and his audio to be quite compelling. So why don't you, in your own words, describe for us your reaction to hearing all that.
1: Uh, okay, well, let me give you a little bit of background because, when, you know, when we were in the height of the memory wars, uh, there were a, a few of, uh, accused parents who... <laughs> who got, you know, who got accused, let's say, by a daughter of all of a sudden, you know, the daughter comes out of this therapy and is accusing them and won't talk to them and the therapist won't talk to them. Some of these parents, uh, you know, hired private investigators to go into the therapist's offices posing as patients and uh, reporting exactly what happened. And so we got to look in those few instances at what actually was going on with the pseudo-patient and the therapist and found instances where these therapists were diagnosing sex abuse survivors, you know, sometimes as early as the first session. And, and at, at that time, CNN was so impressed with, with this operation of these uh, family members to try to unearth information that they sent a producer in with a hidden video camera to, to pretend to be a, a patient. Uh, And that producer got diagnosed as a sex abuse survivor by a therapist who had been implicated in a lot of these problematic family disputes. So, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've had a chance to look at transcripts and and tapes of pseudo-patients getting diagnosed as sex abuse survivors. And A.J. Dillon um, is is now, now the latest example. He... He appears to have, I guess, done this all on his own. And all I can say is, is, is wow, um, you know, the idea that he goes into the, the lawyer with one story and a short time later the, the lawyer is reading back to him a, a different story that, that places the abuse in a different location, conveniently on the campus of Penn State, which makes Penn State the deep pocket in any kind of civil litigation And the therapist, who A.J. goes to see the hundred times or so, who basically um, tells him she believes in repressed memory, tells him she doesn't think people can make this up unless they're really, really good actors, uh, tells him that she has a a really, really good bullshit detector. Well, it it wasn't so good that she could spot A.J. Dillon as a pseudo-patient. It's just... Incredible
0: to listen to. I agree, and that's a really good synopsis uh, there, Doctor Loftus. So, uh, but there's Oh
1: Well, thank you. I, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you can see I was very, I was very moved by it all,
0: and understandably so. But I want to highlight a couple of different aspects that that hit me, and I'm curious as to your your thoughts on it. Uh, I've already referenced PTSD. I, I think you'll agree that, that that's how they're getting around repressed memory therapy having become politically toxic, right? So So now this is a different way of saying repressed memories. And AJ was actually diagnosed with PTSD, medically diagnosed with PTSD because of his Sandusky abuse which never happened. He never was abused by Jerry Sandusky. And oh, by the way, we know from the settlement documents that all the other Sandusky accusers that went to Cynthia McNabb were also diagnosed with PTSD. Do you see the same significance there that I do?
1: Well, I'm just going to challenge you a little bit because, um, first of all, PTSD is a real thing. I mean, if...
0: I know. That's why they're when, using when, it.
1: When people have a traumatic experience, uh, sometimes they develop symptoms that can be very debilitating. Nightmares and uh, flashbacks and anxiety and all kinds of problematic symptoms. It's not a pleasant situation. And it, it, it definitely happens. But people get diagnosed with PTSD uh, even when they have, you know, Clear and, and consistent memories of their trauma. It's not so, yes, that people are getting diagnosed with PTSD in this case because people are presuming the trauma happened. You need a trauma in order to have PTSD.
0: Right. I think, uh, I think, our... but
1: the way, the way they're getting around having to use the word repressed memory in other cases that I'm involved in, maybe not so much in this one is they start calling it dissociation or a dissociative disorder. So that way they can call it something else, and they don't have to call it repressed memory that has been under such challenge over the last couple of decades.
0: And you're right. McNabb uses that word, disassociation, with A.J. Dillon, and, and in reference to the accusers in the Sandusky case. But just to be clear, I understand that PTSD is real, but there's no evidence that people who have PTSD forget the episode that caused their PTSD. However, that it is my impression that they are trying to use that as a replacement. That's an excuse for why it is we didn't remember this or we buried these memories at the time and it only came out via therapy maybe we're, we're having a you know a, a, a definitional uh, discussion here but it is my my perception is that the ptsd diagnosis especially for aj is just a way to excuse why it is it, it took you so long to publicly disseminate the abuse that you allegedly endured uh, as far as another thing that uh, McNabb uh, and Shubin's interviews, if you want to call them that, their discussions with A.J. Revealed, were you as struck as I was at the, the heart of the problem here? And that is that uh, at one point, Shubin says that McNabb was the person that vetted his accusers for him. And McNabb implies that it was Shubin that had vetted the accusers for her. And so therefore, no one is doing any vetting. Everyone is believing everyone else did the vetting. And that therapists, I'm really curious about your thoughts on this, Dr. Loftus. In my opinion, therapists might be literally the worst people in the world to vet somebody for sexual abuse because they are literally trained to believe that abuse has occurred even when it hasn't, or certainly any time anyone thinks it might have occurred. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, yeah, there are, yes, there are plenty of therapists who they, 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 they have no other strategy and no other process uh, but to believe whatever it is the patient is, or client is telling them. And, you know, you hear them say, I'm, I'm not a detective. My role is not to be a detective. I'm there to support their, their story. And I I don't think that they realize that sometimes they're encouraging and helping to expand and reinforce a false story.
0: And to be clear, I'm not suggesting, for instance, I don't think that McNabb is part of a conspiracy to defraud Penn State here. I mean, having listened to hours of of her discussions with, with A.J. Dillon, I just think she's incredibly naive. And, and, and believes, as you already referenced, believes so much in her own bullshit detector. <laughs> Here she is buying into a purposely fake accuser for years. For years, and it's it's not even a good story. That's the part that's really amazing. Purposely, I let AJ come up with his own story knowing that it would be ridiculous, and he didn't disappoint. It was a completely ridiculous story. He made all sorts of mistakes uh, during this process that should have been massive red flags that he was not telling the truth. And then in the end, when he tries to end... The Sessions, because Newsweek told us it was time to end this because we thought the AJ was going to be featured in a Newsweek cover story, she effectively, uh, he tells her, I don't think I was abused by Jerry Sandusky. And she tells him, well, that's actually evidence you were abused by Jerry Sandusky. So so the idea that to me, that therapists are the people we're relying on here are, are completely ridiculous, but it's, it's not a conspiracy. See, Shubin, I think, has a money motive. McNabb just believes that everybody is abused in some sort of way do, do, do you do you agree or disagree have any thoughts on on that assessment
1: well i i don't n- know enough about this therapist but i will say that over these years i have taken a more generous approach to the therapeutic um mistakes that these are individuals who they have one and only one hypothesis about what the the, the, the cause of their their patients or clients problems and they they're going to find support for that hypothesis, the abuse hypothesis, um, that, 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 that they really believe in what they're doing. Not every person who's been skeptical about repressed memories has taken this position. Um, I, you know, so, for example, uh, the Berkeley professor, Richard Offsheet, used to say, uh, you know, if you could turn a, a $2,000 eating disorder patient into a $200,000 multiple personality disorder patient, you know, there's your your motivation. But I, you know, I think if this was just about greed, it would have been a much easier problem to fix. Uh, The problem is that there, there are a set of beliefs here that are not supported by cogent scientific evidence, sometimes even contradicted by scientific evidence. But they're firmly believed, they're cherished beliefs on the part of some fraction of the therapeutic community, and and they go with it.
0: All right. So I already referenced that there's this debate that, that Mark Pendergrass and I have been having where, oddly enough, we've kind of come a little bit closer to each other's position over the years about what's going on with the accusers in the Sandowski case. Uh, Mark, because his, his interest and expertise is in a repressed memory, uh, believes that that was the driving force here, that these guys were literally duped by therapists and prosecutors into believing that they were abused. I am in a different camp where I believe that whether it's repressed memories or disassociation or PTSD, whatever it is, that those were the magic words, that these guys figured out what the magic words were or what the, the permission slip, if you will, was for being able to come up with ever-evolving stories that they never talked about for years and that effectively these were lies, that these guys know they were lying, but they're actually laughing at the therapist and the prosecutors and and the, even maybe in their own lawyers behind the scenes because they, those people are bending over backwards to give them an excuse for why they never said anything about this for many, many years. In which camp are you or are you somewhere in the middle on that?
1: Uh, in, in general, in, in the cases, in the many, many cases I've been involved in, not Sandusky uh, cases, but the others, um, it, I think that probably a larger percentage of the people actually believe in what they're saying. Um, there, I've seen a few where there is some evidence and it, it, it requires some, you know, really digging to find supporting evidence where you do find, find supporting evidence that it's a big, fat lie. But, but in many cases, they really come to believe this. It also can be that what starts as a story or a little lie, if you want to call it that, uh, ends up being something that feels like a memory. It, it turns into a memory. So I would just say to you, John, I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, there are a number of these accusers, the, the eight or so at the trial. Some of them might be deliberately lying if if it didn't happen. Some might have really come to honestly believe it. I, I think it's easier to convince other people, like like prosecutors, if you really believe it,
0: And I think what happened here, Dr. Loftus, is we have a combination of factors, including that last point you just made. I'm not even sure you're aware of this because I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but I believe that victim number one, Aaron Fisher, was sexually abused, but not by Jerry Sandusky, by his stepdad, Eric Daniels, and that that may have been the experience he drew upon to convince people that he was abused. Uh, But I also think it's important to point out that we have at that point, unprecedented amounts of money on the table from a very early stage in this case, which creates a motivation that does not exist in most cases. I think you would agree uh, with that. So so that we're talking about a unique situation and then therefore, uh, you know, the results may also be unique because of those circumstances, including the massive amounts of money that are involved and which, by the way, were paid out. And just to finish that point, I know you haven't been able to, to at this point listen to all the podcasts because it's many, many hours and you're very yeah. and you're very busy. But when you get a chance, listen to the settlements uh, uh, episodes, uh, you know, episode 12, part one and two, because we have voluminous evidence that several of the guys who got paid many millions of dollars in the settlements, not the trial accusers. We're openly lying. We're telling people around them that they were lying. We're looking for people to lie on their behalf as witnesses, not realizing that they didn't even need witnesses. Uh, telling uh, uh, their their baby mamas that they got five million dollars for making up a story that they, they they never even met Jerry Sandusky. So clearly, we we have proven that for at least some of these people, it was a blatant lie, a blatant scam. And if it can happen more than once. Uh, it might have happened in all of them. So, you know, I'm not really asking for you, for you to change your mind on that. I just, it's just for your consideration that the reason why I'm in, more in the lie category is because <laughs> maybe I have more information. Than well, the, when
1: you do, John, when you do have that kind of, you know, if it's truly independent corroboration that could support a deliberate lie, then you have something. Um, but you, you don't need to assume that they're all lying, just because some of them are, because they're there are there there are a number of routes to getting to a false
0: report. Sure, sure, and, and that and that's and the and that's the key. The key is are, are these false reports, and um and so I, I'm I'm curious. I mean, since we're on the record here, what is your position on Jerry Sandusky's guilt or innocence?
1: I I first of all I when I get involved in court cases I usually i'm talking about if these memories aren't real where could they have come from are there examples of suggestive influences highly pressured or suggestive interventions with people that could be responsible for a false memory if this is false you know i've been very critical of the of prosecution experts who bless the abuse story who say in so many words i believe this is real um, when they have no business doing so, because without independent corroboration, you can't know if you're dealing with an authentic memory or one that's a product of imagination, suggestion, pressure, misinterpreting dreams, or, or some other process. So I'm not going to make the, the same mistake uh, that I'm critical of uh, other experts, opposing experts, um, which I see frequently doing.
0: So you're not you're not going to take an official position then is that is that accurate? Right. Okay, um, and and that's that's fine. But I think you've made some very compelling points indicating that the, at the very least the case against Sandusky is incredibly weak, at least from a legal perspective. You you would you would agree? You 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 think that's a fair statement, right?
1: I I'm I mean, I'll tell you. I mean I think it's incredibly shaky. And if people listen to your podcast, read Mark Pendergrass' book. Read some of the essays that Fred Cruz has written about this. Read what Malcolm Gladwell had to say about this case in Talking to Strangers, although I don't think he went far enough. Um, You know, it it should arouse suspicion in intelligent, thoughtful people.
0: One other aspect of why I believe it should arouse suspicion is because this happened at Penn State. And one of the things that we've seen in the last 10 years, Dr. Loftus is that whether it's coincidence or directly related in a domino effect or somewhere in between, there has become what I refer to as a a contagion of alleged abuse cases in uh, higher academia, especially state-run colleges—not all state-run colleges, including uh, here in Southern California, USC—has also been hit by one involving a gynecologist, where they paid well over a billion dollars. But uh, in my view, and, and you and I do not agree much politically. <laughs> you, you and you and I are not aligned politically, although we agree a lot on this particular case. But as, as someone who sees academia as being incredibly politically correct. And, and very, very liberal, especially uh, in, in state-run institutions. Uh, do you agree or see where I'm coming from where I believe that academia is also, much like the therapists themselves, a terrible place to be vetting these kind of situations and determining who should get paid and how much money should be paid, one, because of the the, the political correctness involved, the fear of standing up against uh, accusers who are seen in the media as saints, but also because it's free money. They, this is not their money that they're giving away. So do you agree that that Penn State being an academic institution, as we've seen in other academic institutions after the Penn State case, really creates almost a perfect storm of circumstances that allows these kind of cases to spiral out of control and for the truth to get lost?
1: Uh, I'll, I'll let me mention another situation that uh, is fraught uh, inside of academia, and that has to do with the campus sexual assault cases. Um, now, you know, the, now there's just huge numbers of cases. I mean, obviously, there's actual assault that happens, and usually it's, it's a female accusing a male, sometimes a female student accusing a male student of, a, of sexual abuse or sexual assault. And it's the male who then gets uh, punished, suspended, expelled, uh, you know, some kind of punishment. Um, I don't think these campuses uh, know how to properly, you know, investigate and, and handle these cases. And this is why there are probably at least 400 cases right now, civil cases of male students suing their universities for wrongful punishment. So, you know, we've got a whole other arena uh, or, or, I guess, a subset of cases that involve academic institutions trying to do the investigations that that have led to at least some serious claims of injustice.
0: Well, you know, I, I, you and I have spoken privately about the USC case, which I just find the, the amount of money just mind-blowingly insane, and I know people in that case that have been paid that never even saw the doctor and never even, you know, applied for any sort of restitution, Um, and and that, you know, so I I have great suspicions about how the money there was spent, but are there any of those particular uh, situations, whether it's beyond Penn State, we've, you know, we've got uh, Michigan and Ohio State and USC, and, and by the way, I don't know if you know if you've been following it, but now in the Michigan case, they're trying to, to do to Bo Schembechler, former Michigan legendary head football coach, what they did to Joe Paterno, where this week that we're doing this interview, uh, there was a press conference involving a, a 52-year-old story Uh, of his stepson claiming that he told Beau Schembechler that he had been abused by a doctor, a team doctor. The team doctor's been long dead. schembeckler has been long dead. Uh, The stepson's mother's been long dead. Uh, There's no corroboration of this, no documentation of this. And the news media Takes it as, as if it must be true. And of course, the University of Michigan is going to be under great pressure to open up the the, the, the bank, the vault and, and give away the store. Uh, so, I mean, do you, do you have any, you know, are there any of these in particular that, uh, that set off alarm bells in, in your mind, Dr. Loftus?
1: Well, I, I, I mean, first of all, I can't speak about some of the cases where there's still litigation pending and I have some obligation um, not to be speaking about it right now. But, but uh, your question makes me wonder just, just what is it going to take for people to stop uncritically accepting every abuse accusation, no matter how dubious, and just deciding it must be real? Um, what's, what's it going to take? I mean, how far is this going to go before people finally say, just wait a minute, there is, there's something wrong here.
0: Well, we had the Duke lacrosse case, which you would have thought would have caused people for an extended period of time to, to at least say, okay, hold on a second, before we start destroying lives, let's find out what actually happened.
1: Oh my and, God, that was quite the case. You know, you know in the lacrosse case, they, they just showed this accuser uh, photographs of, of every Caucasian Uh, lacrosse player because she said the ones who assaulted her were Caucasian and basically any three she pointed to were going to become the defendants and they did.
0: And it turned out they were innocent. And, yes. and and by the way, there were still lives that were destroyed there that were never fixed, including the coach of that Duke Lacrosse team. But uh, it apparently had no impact. It had no impact. and now right.
1: well, you know the, the students, the, the accused students did end up getting some compensation for right. all they went through right. and, and deservedly so.
0: But when I'm it let, you know but when Penn State happened, there was there was zero hesitation. and, and I do really yeah. I really do believe that Penn State begat uh, and opened the floodgates. To a, a lot of these cases, not that these cases are all as fraudulent as Penn State. I actually happen to think the mission case that the doctor probably was committing abuse. Uh, I don't believe that the Ohio State doctor was doing what was alleged. All these cases are different. The Michigan State case was absolutely real with Larry Nasser. Although I don't believe there was a cover-up with Michigan State, largely because they had no motivation to be covering up for the physician for the for the gymnastics team, and there's no evidence of that. But it it, it seems as if Now, everyone realizes that the the ATM machine is open, and and there's an alliance here, Dr. Loftus, that you said, okay, what's it going to take? I I don't know that it's possible to to defeat this alliance, because this alliance, which we've already kind of alluded to, but I I want to spell it out here. We've got this alliance where everyone's self-interests are aligned, therapists, lawyers, academia, and the news media. That is an incredibly strong alliance where no one is vetting anybody. Everyone is incentivized to believe a story. Everyone's getting a piece of the pie. Academia has free money to give out, and they get to signal their virtue and show how awesome they are. And they actually oftentimes, like in the Penn State case, they get positive media coverage, the people that that fix this by giving away millions and millions of dollars. There's no downside to it. So that's an alliance, Dr. Loftus, that in my view, and I know because I've been going up against it so many years in the Penn State case, I don't know if you can defeat that. You see what I'm saying?
1: Uh, Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. I mean, I guess slightly more optimistically, after the McMartin preschool case where all these little kiddies were accusing the teachers and owners of the McMartin preschool of horrific abuse and after those prosecutions in the 80s and then all these towns had their own little McMartin, one in New Jersey, you know, in Massachusetts and San Diego, all over the place, but, uh, you know, there were convictions and, and uh, you know, almost almost all of those have been reversed and and in some cases huge compensation to the innocently accused people, and we don't see a rash of McMartin cases all over, so... Uh, you know, we've had some some kind of witch hunts in the past that have uh, subsided. It's possible.
0: Well, I, th- I think we have a witch hunt in the Penn State Sandusky case, and I think we may have a witch hunt among dead doctors. I mean, it seems like dead doctors are on uh, for, for state-run universities are now a, a cottage industry uh, for accusers because how, you know, a dead doctor, how do, how do you defend against that? I mean, <laughs> the guy's yeah. been dead for a long time. Like, you know, you can say anything you want, and there doesn't even have to be documentation of any sort of, of uh, contemporaneous allegation. Oh.
1: That's and, why we have statute of limitations in, in well, our legal system. Well,
0: we used, but the me, the media no longer, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that, the media no longer recognizes statute of limitations as having now, any validity at all. That's why, why we get 52-year-old stories about Bo Schembechler when he's dead. I mean, it's just unbelievable uh, what has happened here. And we saw it in the Penn State case involving the 70s accusers and, and Joe Paterno, which are the most ludicrous allegations in the entire Sandowski case. Dr. Loftus, let me ask you one last question now, because... Sometimes, uh, you know, a person's personal story can actually tell a greater truth about the issue that they're dealing with. And I think yours is, is one of those. You have, you know, been a very high profile person for a long time. On this particular issue, you've been featured on 60 Minutes uh, in in a very positive way. I mean, you know, written about all over the world in in very positive ways. You recently had a a feature done on you by uh, it was Vanity Fair, right? Um, And no, it's New Yorker. I'm sorry, New Yorker. Yorker. I'm sorry, I don't know why it was Vanity Fair, but the New Yorker, the New York, the New York. I should have known it was New Yorker because the New Yorker employs Ronan Farrow, Um, and uh, which this
1: was Rachel Aviv. She was the uh, the journalist,
0: right? And so did that. So, so they did a feature on you, and it's interesting because the the the, the opinion about this New Yorker feature on you is is greatly uh, spread out. I mean, there are some people who think this was. Very positive towards you. Some people think it was a hit piece on you, and uh, I'm curious what you think of it. But more importantly, uh, it was about your defense of people who are toxic, including Jerry Sandusky. Sandusky was referenced in the New Yorker uh, feature on you, and apparently, you have suffered some backlash because of that, including people uh, at your academic institution, the University of California, Irvine. Who've been trying to get you fired because uh, of your opinions on these high-profile cases? Can can you give us some insight into what's going on there?
1: It it has ha- it has been true that there's been a kind of backlash. A uh, uh, um, handful of students tried to get, uh, to get the law school to to fire me, said that, you know, they didn't like the idea I was teaching future lawyers and psychologists because I was poisoning them with my terrible theories of, of memory. Uh, even a, a, a colleague screamed at me at the at the sandwich table uh, right before a faculty meeting because of my involvement in, in one high-profile case. And, I, I, you know, I don't know why these people forget That we have a legal system that presumes people are innocent until they're proven guilty. That even really unpopular people deserve a defense. That not every accusation is a true accusation. That we can't let the media decide who's guilty and who's not. People just kind of lose their common sense when it comes to this emotional issue, John, and I haven't quite figured out how to change it, so I, I just learned to live with some of the unpleasant things that come my way.
0: Well, well, good for you for standing strong, but Dr. Loftus, I'm assuming you also see kind of the point inherent in my, my question about that, or how I began was, doesn't the reaction to you being featured in The New Yorker kind of prove the entire core problem? in that here you are, you're just playing an important role in the judicial system and, and for due process, and people want you punished for that. And it, it's only in that environment where the kinds of injustices that we are alleging could actually transpire, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the strengths and different extremes of opinion about that New Yorker profile, though, were partly... Um, you know, some people felt that it, it, it didn't spend enough time talking about my work and the basic science. Other people at the other end of the extreme said that it, it humanized me because it was so personal. So, you know, it was a little like a Rorschach. People <laughs> saw different things in this uh, right. in this whatever, eight-page article.
0: Well, and again, just to just to reiterate the point, to me, uh, you know, the idea that we're now living in a world where you even have to worry about people going after you because you get profiled in the New Yorker for having the audacity to say, hey, wait a minute, some of these high profile cases that you become emotionally invested in guilt might not be valid. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like we're treating everyone like children, like, you know, if, 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 it's a, if you have an opinion that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're too invested in, that you're too, uh, you know, too, you like too much uh, emotionally, you're not allowed to be disabused of it. And if you do disabuse somebody of it, you're the bad guy and you need to be punished. That's an, inc- yep. that's an incredibly healthy unhealthy situation, and I think it, it manifests itself in further injustice. But thank goodness you're around, Dr. Loftus, and you're not willing to cave in. And it's been, you know, it's been great getting to know you over these many, many years. Uh, I don't know how much longer uh, I'll be on this, but um, it's not over yet. Uh, but I do want to uh, thank you for, for, one, doing this interview and also uh, for your guidance and your, your work on this case uh, over this last decade.
1: Okay. Well, John, it's been been fun talking to you over these years as well, and uh, I I just learned today that the Fred Cruz's essay is going to finally be uh, uh, accepted by a print outlet, so um, hopefully it can combine with what you're doing to um, open people's eyes a little bit.
0: Well, that's news yeah. to me. I did not know that. Fred is
1: no, no, just it's just brand new.
0: Fred is a, a professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, who has been also on this case for a very, very long time and has been influential behind the scenes in a lot of ways, including, by the way, he influenced that Wall Street Journal uh, book review of Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, in which they basically chide him for not saying that Jason Tusky is innocent, which shocked the hell out of me. Uh, But uh, but Fred is a great guy, and I'll I'll be looking forward to that, and I'm sure I'll talk to you again sometime in the future. Dr. Loftus, thanks so much for your time.
1: Okay, my pleasure. (laughs) Bye-bye.